Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. Page 1915 in your pew Bibles. Revelation 2. To the angel of the church at Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are some Christian traditions that stand anytime the word of God is read, and it's a way of, of submitting or humbling yourselves before God. Our tradition has been to sit in a posture of humility. And so there's different cultural expressions around this. But, but the reason I had you stand this morning is there is very much a courtroom background to this. It is the judgment of a ruler pronouncing judgment over his people. And, and because of that, there is a sense that, that similar to a courtroom, when that judgment is being read, we need to stand. The word is not to the world out there. The word of God here is to the people of God in the church. Those are are God's people gathered together and God is saying to them, Jesus Christ is saying, I have a word of judgment and it's a word you need to hear. Now when we hear that word judgment associated with church and Bible in our time, we tend to think of very heavy-handed, wrathful, vengeful God. And that's not the case here. This is a balanced judgment, a judgment that says, here's where you are faithful, and here yet is where you are lacking, and then encourages us in grace to enter in to a more faithful uh, posture before God and before the world. We need to understand that what was happening in Pergamum made this a challenging situation to be faithful. There were multiple things that pop up in the text that that take a little historical context in explaining to know for, for us to know and recognize how difficult it was for them to remain faithful. You may have caught some of the phrases that started off the beginning of there. There's idol worship. It, it has that statement where Satan has his throne. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, I see you, and I see you in a place that's difficult to follow me because of the worship of all the other gods. But it's not just the general, there's lots of worship happening in Pergamum of other gods. There's actually in Pergamum, which is a city built up on a hillside, a a pretty difficult hill to climb. In fact, to get to the city, to get into the city, you had to take a road from the plain down below that went fully all the way around the city, all the way around making its way up the mountain to get to the top. It was a very dominating city, so you could see it from the plains coming up around it. It was intimidating. And above that city, on its highest point, a point that could be seen from the plains, was a temple to Zeus, shaped like an amphitheater. Amphitheater? Uh, and, and it was curved outwards so that the people could look out and, and they could see this idol in this temple. And, and there was a throne. It was called Zeus's throne. And Zeus's throne was erected on a big monument on, in the center of that temple, overlooking the, the city and the plains below. And it was marked by serpents. The base of that throne had serpents intertwined all around it. And Jesus is saying, I see how difficult it is to be my faithful people because you literally have a throne to a foreign God sitting above you. And that idea of the serpents intertwined on it would have spoken powerfully to God's people as a symbol reminding them of Satan all the way back in the Garden of Eden. It is difficult to follow God when there is such a domineering presence of another religion sitting right there and one that is so clearly antithetical to Christianity, to God's people. It's not just that. Jesus commends them for their faithfulness and says, In the day you did not turn away, in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was put to death in your city, there's actually persecution and a named martyr here. It's act- the only disciple who's named in the whole book of Revelation is Antipas. He's one of the early martyrs of the church and we know nothing about him other than this statement here, that he was God's faithful servant in the midst of persecution and that he died for his faith. Imagine what it's like to be in a context where people have literally died for their faith in front of you? To be a people who who are trying to be faithful to the gospel, but you know that faithfulness can lead to physical death. You've seen it. If you haven't seen it, you certainly heard about it. People of Pergamum have experienced more persecution than any of the other seven churches because they've reached that point where it's not just socially inconvenient to be a Christian, but where the government itself turned against Christians and said, no more. What's more, that government is still in power. The imperial power in this city was almost unequaled at that time to other cities in Asia Minor. It was one of the places that had early on, similar to what we talked about last, last week with Smyrna, those two cities were two of the earliest cities to align themselves with Rome 
a couple hundred years before Christ. Before the Roman Empire was really an empire, it was still emerging. And Pergamum was one of those places that says, we stand with Rome. And they did so in a way that they refused to be accommodating to other, other religions and other nations. Of all the churches that we'll hear about in these letters to the churches in Revelation, Pergamum is the one that was least friendly to the Jews. There's only a small Jewish community here. It, the rest of these other religions were pushed out. In other cities, lots of the Jews were able to gain Roman citizenship and, and have a place of standing in the Roman culture, but not in Pergamum. In Pergamum, it was Rome, or it was nothing else. And you were driven out, and they were not afraid to, to literally drive you out or to kill you in order to pre protect their identity as being a Roman people. How hard is it to be a Christian in a place that has idol worship so blatantly at the center of the city overlooking it, where you know there is a history of persecution that leads to death, and where you see the reminders of the imperial power every day. There's a cultural context a religious context and an economic context that made it very difficult to stay faithful. And Jesus' first word to them, you have been faithful. You didn't deny my name in the midst of all of this. Hear that good word, Jesus saying to them, you have done well. In the midst of all this, you have done well not to deny my name. They didn't turn away. They didn't run in the midst of the persecution. They stayed there. But the trouble that church was facing wasn't merely external. They were faithful in that sense on the external side. The trouble that Jesus goes after in this passage, what he has against them is internal. It has to do with who they are as a people. You'll hear a couple references in this text. One of them uh, is to Balaam and the other to the, to the Nicolaitans. Some among you hold to the teachings of Balaam and, and hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We don't know a whole lot about the Nicolaitans. There's some speculation about how it started and who it was, but there's a lot of agreement that it wasn't a theological difference. It was a lived difference. It was an issue of practice. What we run into as we try to unpack this part of, of what's Jesus after them for? What's, what's he saying they lack yet? He drives it home this way. He says, you're like Balaam. Now to understand Balaam, we, ha we have to understand what he was doing. We, we may remember the story of Balaam and his donkey. Anybody remember that? Balak, who was one of the kings who the people of Israel had to pass on their way into the promised land during the time of the Exodus. And, and the people are going past, and Balak sees this massive group of people coming out of Egypt and out of the desert, and he hires Balaam to go and put a curse on God's people. And Balaam goes to try and says, I'll, I'll put a curse on them, but I can only speak the words God gives me. And, and instead of cursing them, he ends up blessing them. He does it three times. And, and Balak's beside himself. But during the journey of that story, we also hear about Balaam and his donkey. And, and Balaam's riding his donkey. 
and he's going along with the intent of trying to deceive Israel, to try to get Israel to turn away from God. And, and as he's going, that donkey goes off the path, and then that donkey runs him into a bush, and then the donkey just stops and sits under him. And he gets up, and he starts beating the donkey, and the donkey talks to him. <laughs> and through this whole story, his eyes are opened, and he sees an angel of the Lord standing there with a sword drawn, ready to kill him. We learn later that though Balaam was not able to curse the people of God, he convinced the Midianites that the only way to get Israel to turn from God was if they were seduced into sexual immorality and eating food from idols. In Numbers 25 and then later on in Numbers 31, we hear the story of how the Midianites deceived the people of Israel. Not through new theology, not through new worship of a God, but through becoming like the nations around them in the way they lived, in their sexuality, in their eating habits. That if they just accommodated to the world around them, then Israel would fall. And Balaam convinced the Midianites that was the way to do it. And the Midianites did it. They ate the food, sacrificed to idols. And some of the Midianite women came in and seduced the men of Israel. And there was great punishment and losses in Israel. And there was a time of, of being called into repentance after that. Jesus is saying to the church, you've accommodated You've become like the world around you so that there's nothing to distinguish you from the world around you. You're falling into their practices. You may not deny my name, but you're living in such a way that no one can recognize you belong to my name. The emphasis here is on an error in practice, not an error in belief. famous theologian from the 60s, right? Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger in an interview in 1969 said this, Jesus Christ was fantastic and something to base life on, but I do not like the church. The church does more harm than good. I think if you read what Jesus Christ says, you needn't bother about church. Jesus Christ didn't like church. He used to kick people out of temples. I think they all ought to be kicked out of temples. We live in a context, folks, that's not unlike what was being experienced by Pergamum. They may, we may not be experiencing death and threat to our physical lives at this point, but we live in a culture that is highly suspicious of Christians and very convinced that the Christians have nothing to offer the world. I'm not going to say that's true that their assessment is true. There's some great work being done by even some people in our congregation through Cardis where they're looking at the impact of churches on the cities and seeing the benefit that's being brought. But the assumption in the world is very much what Mick Jagger expressed here. We've been there. We've done that. We've tried the church. It's failed. There's nothing there to offer us. Those Christians are a waste of our time. We've been written off by the world around us. And it's so much so that there's suspicion that the Christians are up to no good. You see this coming out even in our Canadian context around some of the, the efforts around Christian schooling. 
You may recall what was hitting the news a couple years ago and, and was in the front line of, of, well, Justin Cooper's work was tied into it with, with his work around the Trinity Western trying to get a law school approved. And again and again, the lawyer societies coming back and saying, no, we can't approve that because they're biased against people. And their vote for tolerance and insistence on tolerance became something that discriminated against Christians and the place of Christians within our culture. We are in a place similar to what Pergamum was, where the society is structured at this point to be against Christianity. And here, Jesus is saying, be faithful. Don't accommodate to the world. Stand up, allow yourselves to be different. It is a challenge for us. And I think we need to ask these type of questions. Where is society anti-Christian? We need to be able to name those ways and not just make a blanket statement that all of society is against Christianity, but be able to name the specific ways that our society is standing in the way of Christianity and saying no and pushing Christianity away. To do similar to what Jesus did at the start of this text where he says, I see the throne of Satan, I see your faithfulness in the midst of persecution, and I see how the imperial cult is pushing you out. To be able to name those ways. But it also begs this other question. When we can name those ways, do we recognize the places where we are afraid to be recognized as Christian? Do we recognize those moments and those times where we're afraid to be known as a Christian because we know the consequences it will have? But it goes one step further. Not only is it a societal context, there's accommodation that we have that goes deeper. David Kinneman does tons of research on the, the state of the church and the relationship of the church to the world around it, mostly in the States, but they've done some in Canada too. And here's one of the things he said after, after one of the studies, uh, looking at the differences between Christians and difference of, of those who don't believe. He said, The respect, patience, self-control, and kindness aboard again Christians should astound people. But the lifestyles and relationships of born-again believers are not much different than others. Again and again, the stats show up that the, that the addictions, that the use of... of substances, that the use of pornography, that the broken relationship and the extramarital affairs, the pursuit of consumerism and healthy, wealthy lifestyles is no different between the church and people outside the church. It should give us pause. It should bring us to a point where we hear God's word to Pergamum and we start to ask, what behaviors are we justifying? What are we doing in our own lives that we go, ah, it's not that big of a deal. And we kind of accommodate to the patterns of the world around us. And maybe a different way of asking that question is, how are we blending in with the crowds around us? What's going on in our own lives that we look and sound and act just like the world around us? We may show up here for an hour on Sunday or an hour and a half, but if that's the only thing different, we've missed what Christ has called us to. A whole lifestyle that is shaped by his word and life in relationship with him. Grace. This text actually drips 
with grace, but we might be quickly reading over it and we might have a propensity to look at the things that are wrong and get stuck in what's broken. There is grace that comes from the beginning to the end of this text and I want us to hear it carefully. The first is the grace of Jesus' double-edged sword. We hear sword and we might go, ah, that sounds judgment and heavy and condemning. But there is a grace in this. Remember, they're facing persecution. And they're facing persecution that has led to death. It has been a physical death. And Jesus saying, I am the one with the double-edged sword, is reminding God's people, reminding us, that even though you have broken circumstances, even though you have people who are persecuting the church, I'm still the ultimate authority. I still have authority over the whole world. I am the one with the true judgment sword. Not the government, not the political and religious powers around you, but I, Jesus Christ, am the one with the true judgment. And because of that, you can be assured that justice will come about. That though you are persecuted, though you are discriminated against, there will be a day when you will see justice done. This is a common refrain of reading through the Psalms, that again and again we hear God's people cry out, Oh Lord, don't you see our enemies? And God's response to them is that he will hold the evildoers, hold the wicked accountable. comes up in Psalm 1 already, that the way of the wicked will perish. Literally, the way of the wicked will have a day where it is no more, and the people of God, the righteous, will dwell in God's presence forever. God again and again assures us that even though the wrongs seem off so strong as we sing, God is the ruler yet. Not only that, but I don't know if you caught it. Jesus says, after he says to the churches, repent, he says, or I will come against you. Not you, I will come against them. I will come against them and I will rout them out. Christ promises a day where those who are presenting the false teachings and the false lifestyles and trying to deceive God's people from within, similar to what Balaam was trying to do, where they're trying to deceive God's people, Christ says, I have the sword of judgment that will even cut that out. The double-edged sword in the military context was not only a nice weapon, it was used because it was sharp in both ways to cut clean cuts on wounded areas to cut out the wound and Christ is saying I will come and there will be a day where I hold my church accountable not in a way to destroy it but to cut out the wound so that my people will experience a fullness of life that they are not now experiencing be assured I've got you I have the sword of justice in my hand and I will make you clean Even more than that, there's another grace in here, and it's the grace of repentance. One of my Old Testament profs said, the time you know that God's people are in trouble is when God becomes silent. If God is still talking to his people, if God is still reaching out to his people, there's hope for redemption. There's hope for restoration. God is still saying, come to me. I'll forgive you. Similar to that Isaiah 55 passage. Come to me and you will receive my forgiveness. 
forsake your wicked ways. Turn to me, for my ways aren't like the world. I'm not going to hold you to, to what you have done and condemn you forever. I will bring you forgiveness and new life. Uh, you'll spring up and instead of the thorns and briars that so describe your life right now and being entangled in the sins that you're in, I'll bring you freedom so that you run out full of joy and even creation itself will leap and be full of joy for you because you experience a freedom and newness of life. And Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum and to us, there's hope yet. Your sin is not so great that it can't be overcome. Your sin is not so powerful that you can't be released from it. Come to me. I'll give you that freedom you long for. Come to me. So in the midst of the hard word of judgment saying, you have sinned against me, Jesus is also saying, but that's not the end of the story. Come to me. Find forgiveness. Find the new life that I'm offering you. And then this, the grace of the white stone and the new name. This image really combines a couple images that were popular in Pergamum. They had on the edifice of of the city big brown stones. It was kind of a brownish marble stone that, that defined the city walls. But inside of it, the places they wanted to write the important things, they inserted white marble. So the brown was kind of the ordinary background they lived against, and the white marble was stuff that stood out. And it was stuff they were supposed to be paying attention to, and and great people of the city would have their name written on it, and edicts and sayings of, of the wise people would be put on it. But more than that, it was used in the context of judgment. There would be two stones that the jury or the judge would hold. One was black, which condemned the people, usually condemned them to death. And one was white, which was an acquittal, telling them that they were set free, that they were no longer under judgment, but had been given new life, and they were free to go. And along with that, those same type of white stones were also used like a VIP backstage pass. It had your name on it. And you were able to enter into certain places in the city if you had these white stones with your name written on it. It gave you access to places other people couldn't go. And so we have wrapped up in this uh, an acquittal, a freedom, a a name of prestige being given to God's people and, and such a freedom and access to hospitality that hadn't been there before. Jesus is saying, Come to me. Repent of your sins. Find forgiveness and healing. And trust me, I will give you a new name. I will acquit you of all the sins that you have accumulated. I will set you free. That's the hope that's buried in the midst of this text. That God's people, even in the midst of great persecution and great trial, we have a God who is not out to condemn us, but a God who longs to set us free, who longs, us, longs for us to experience new life in Him and to be found in Him. And He's standing there saying, Come to me. Find freedom. Let me give you the freedom from fear of judgment. 
Let me give you from the freedom from fear of persecution. Let me give you the freedom to live fully for me here and now, no matter the consequences, because you know the prize that awaits you. You know the gift I'm going to give, which is that you will be with me. You will be with me. And you will no longer be under judgment, but be found in freedom. We're going to enter into responsive reading. We're going to move from this space right into a time of repentance. And it's a responsive reading based on the Ten Commandments. I'll read the leader part. I invite you to read the people part. And after we've gone through this responsive reading, we're going to have a time of prayer. But that prayer is going to start in a place of silence. And that silence isn't so much for our minds to wander whatever, wherever we want to go and think about the tasty pie after lunch. But it is meant to be a space where we start going, okay, Lord, what spaces in my life have I accommodated to the world around me? What spaces do I need to confess and acknowledge before you? So I invite you into that time of confession and silence, and then I'll close that prayer. Please read with me and hear the word of God. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. And God spoke all these words I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor.
Let's pray.